Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Welcome to our 21st mini failure episode. I bet Brian wants to tell you about how if this episode was a person, it could drink alcohol in America. And a bunch of other countries around the world. I beat him to it. You did beat me to it, but this is a podcast and it cannot sit at a bar or consume alcohol, legally or illegally. But we sure can. Yes, we can. Welcome to Failureology Light. We're bringing you engineering failures in easily digestible, bite-sized pieces. Make no mistake, these are still significant failures, but they either have pretty straightforward causes, or not enough information, or like this one, they happened a really long time ago, and information is pretty limited. There's just not enough for a regular episode. This week's mini failure is about the Coconut Grove fire. Before we get started, we did not spell coconut wrong. That's how it's spelled in all of the formal reports that were done, all of the literature that I found. Yes, there is an A in it. No, there is not normally an A in coconut. Yes, the entire time I was preparing this, I was saying coconut in my head. I don't know why they spelled it this way. They were trying to be different. I don't know. It's like this happened in 1942. So who really knows what was going on? Or or maybe it's just an old timey spelling of coconut since this building was built way before 1942. But the incident that we're going to talk about happened on November 28th, 1942, around 1015 in Boston, Massachusetts. This incident was the second deadliest single building fire in U.S. history, and it claimed 400 and 92 lives. That's a lot of people to perish in a building fire. Just to give this some context, like Brian said, this is 1942. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened, I think, in 1913. And that one definitely did bring about a lot of building code changes with regard to how, uh, with regard to building occupancy and exiting. But 1942, you know, that was only 30 years later. I also think there was some things going on in the background. These guys weren't necessarily following all of the rules if they were in place. But this is definitely, you know, this is 80 years ago. So this is not under the same type of rules that we're seeing today. Not that a fire this bad can't happen. We've seen a lot of really bad fires lately, but it's unlikely at least in you know in in Canada and the US where we've got these really really strict building codes and exiting standards that we would see a fire this bad and and this tragic to add in today standards Nicole whenever you go somewhere say look at a theater um or a pub or the grocery store do you ever look and see where the emergency exits are like, is yeah. is that something that you that you look for like when you go in either yes having done this more since failureology or even even before? Definitely. I would say this podcast has definitely opened my eyes to the different types of risks that can occur. I always like to know where the exits are and I don't that's not because I'm that's not necessarily because I'm concerned that there's going to be an incident. I'm just very type A and so I like to know all the different ways in and out of a building just for convenience and for efficiency of exiting at the end of the event, uh, I'll say. But yeah, yeah, I usually I know where they are, yeah. 
If that's something you don't do, it's a good idea to just start doing that. You never know when that 10-second look around could save your life. Yeah. And that's our public safety announcement for this episode. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. That too. Coconut Grove was one of the most popular night spots in Boston before and during World War II. And on the Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend, it was a packed house. A lot of people there, a lot of dancing going on, a lot of things happening. So the complex, built in 1916, consisted of brick and concrete buildings over a one and a half story meandering assortment of dining rooms, bars, and lounges. The decorations consisted of leatherette, rattan, and bamboo coverings on the walls, heavy draperies, and dark blue satin canopies on the ceiling. That was very 1930s, 1940s, probably a super cool venue. There was a claim that the decorative cloth had been treated with a fire retardant after it was installed, but there's no documentation to back this up. On the night of the fire, the club was beyond the rated capacity of 460 people. They were well above that and held nearly a thousand people. Some of the exit doors were also locked and some were hidden behind drapes. And this was to prevent unauthorized entry. And we've seen this lots before. This is certainly not allowed in today's standards. But back then they would lock these exit doors so that people couldn't sneak in. But it also doesn't let people escape. Just as a side note for for fire exit things, um, a number of years ago, I was at a long-term care facility and they had moved a couch in front of the fire exit door to prevent uh, some dementia patients and some older people from wandering and accidentally opening the door. I called the fire department, 311, our, our kind of reporting line for stuff. Um, the next day, there was a fire inspector that was there and he was not pleased that there was a couch blocking an emergency exit. Did you tell them first that it was a problem or did you just go straight to 311? First, I told them that it was an issue to be blocking the the fire exit. And I was told that if there was an emergency, that they could just move the couch, which maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But if there's an emergency going on and you have to use the fire exit, the last thing that you want to do is need to move a couch. And within this facility, once you get to your 80s, 90s, you know, the age that people are in long-term care facilities, you don't have a lot of strength to move things like couches or chairs or tables and it's just one more thing that you know residents would have to deal with and staff would have to deal with so i gave them a little bit of leeway if you know if somebody had to come and moved it within say half an hour or you know somebody they said they would deal with it that day probably wouldn't have called about it but by the time i left a couple hours later it was still there i i moved it before i left and then the fire inspector came, I had pictures, the fire inspector came the next day, it was back where it was, and uh, like I said, not very happy. Didn't see it there in subsequent visits. So in addition to all of the flammable decorations, which I will say, you know, in your house, your couches, your curtains, your carpets, those are all extremely flammable, which is fun to think about in a terrifying way. So in addition to all these things in the nightclub, The air conditioning also used a flammable gas. They used methyl chloride as their refrigerant for their air conditioning system. This wasn't necessarily deliberate. There was a shortage of Freon from World War II, and methyl chloride was one of the only alternatives that were available. So that that was an unfortunate coincidence, I think, that occurred here. 
So on November 28, 1942, a small fire broke out in a fake palm tree in the basement lounge. So remember, this is spread out over over one and a half floors. So there's kind of a basement on the one side of the building. And then you go up some stairs and then the rest of it is all located on the main floor. And so the story goes that a patron of the club unscrewed a light bulb to allow him and his date more privacy. And a busboy was tasked with replacing this bulb, and he lit a match to see what he was doing. And then he extinguished the match. This is just the the story. This is the urban legend, the rumor. The official report says that the origin of the fire is unknown. It could have been from the match, or it could have been from electrical, or it could have been something else. We One thing we know for sure, though, is that there was a fire, and it spread really, really quickly to the ceiling decorations, and then it was further fueled by the methyl chloride in the refrigeration system, and within five minutes, the fire and smoke had spread throughout the entire club. So not only do we have locked doors and lots of flammable things, and we're overcrowded, there's at least double the occupants in the building than there's supposed to be. All of these things alone are an issue, but then the fire spread so quickly that people really didn't have an, a lot of time to react. Some people, unfortunately, died in their seats, drinks still in their hand because the fire spread so fast that they just didn't have an opportunity to move. They didn't have time to react. Yeah, remember those locked doors we talked about a couple minutes ago? Well, turns out, since all the doors were locked, there was only one functioning exit in this whole place, the main entrance which was a revolving door, and it was kind of tucked into a portico. So if you've ever used a revolving door, and I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably used a revolving door, they're not the easiest to use in the best of times. So modern revolving doors in emergency situations, um, they actually, they basically collapse in on themselves. So if, if you have a, say, a cross-type revolving door, those just fold into each other, so it just makes a line um, so that way people can go in and out. And we also have a bunch of other, um, you know, features on doors, emergency exit doors, where if there's an alarm of any any kind that the magnetic sensor will basically disconnect so you can open the door. Back in 1942 or 1916, when this building was designed, they didn't have these things. So we're in a situation, almost a thousand people in this club, one door lots of things are on fire it's spreading really quickly not a good situation not a situation i would ever want to be in there was a window that could have been broken um, and used as an emergency exit but it was boarded up and unusable other doors opened inward which is the worst direction to open in any sort of emergency situation if you look at building designs, a lot of the critical doors in buildings are designed so that way they're pushed open in emergency situations for a number of reasons. It's easier to push a door open, I feel. And then also, if there's a crush of people behind you, you don't have to stop and pull the door into that crowd. People can just naturally push push through the door. It's going in the same direction that they are to escape the building. Fire officials said that if the doors had swung open, another 300 lives could have been saved. That's a significant amount of lives that could have been saved if the doors worked in the opposite direction. The, so the fire, 492 people died in the fire. If they had saved 300 lives, hundred that would have meant theoretically 192 people still would have perished, but that would have been 20% of the occupants instead of 50% of the occupants. And while those 192 deaths were still preventable, were obviously still tragic, 192 
I have to say, is an improvement on 492. Of the 11 fire extinguishers in the building, only four had obviously been used. The owner of the club, Barnett or Barney Wolanski, was said to be a mafia lawyer, and he had apparently gained ownership of the club when one of his clients was gunned down. On the night of the fire, Wolanski was recovering from a heart attack at nearby Massachusetts General Hospital, where some of the victims from the fire were sent. He served almost four years in jail as a result of this fire and was released shortly before his death. So I talked a little bit about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. So similar to that, the Coconut Grove fire brought about significant changes in fire safety regulations, which I think fire safety regulations of all of the, this is a weird thing to have an interest in, I think, but out of all of the different codes that are out there today, the National Fire Protection Association is certainly one of my favorites, if not my favorite. I think they do a really great job of providing life-saving codes and regulations. I also think that their codes are really simple to use. They're they're not overly complicated. They provide really clear direction. They provide a lot of helpful diagrams. They're broken out into several different sections based on what different types of things you're looking at. So for example, the building code is a thousand pages. It's a daunting code. It's huge. Yes, it's broken up into sections, but NFPA is is all kind of separate little codes that you can can look at. Their codes are also available for free online, which I think is fantastic. One surefire way to get people to follow codes is to make the codes accessible. There's nothing like having a code reference that you know you need to follow, but you don't have the code and it's $250 to buy it. The likelihood of me buying that code is is slimmer because I have to pay for it. If it was free, I would for sure look it up. No doubt about it. But when I have to pay for it, it's a bit of a barrier to entry for me. So some of the changes that came out of this fire were no flammable decorations were allowed in public assembly spaces and the materials that were used had to conform to nationally recognized test methods, which I think is fantastic. And the definition of public assembly spaces was also changed to include nightclubs, which was not normal at the time. So at the time, public assembly spaces might be concert halls or dance halls or theaters, but it was adopted to allow these different types of spaces, including nightclubs, which I think is is fantastic. For those not familiar, there's different, especially on the HVAC side, there's different requirements for different types of spaces because people gather differently. So in an office, you allow a certain amount of square feet per person, but in a nightclub, people are obviously in their much tighter spaces. And so there's more people in a smaller space. And so you have to allow more air, more air changes to accommodate that extra load of people. And so fire is kind of similar. There's also different exiting rules, different bathroom rules, honestly. There's a bunch of different rules when you change the type of space that that an area is classified as. All of these super cool things that you just take for granted probably didn't even consider, and they're all a result of things like this. I think that's really cool that all of these different design concepts for different size spaces and square footage for people and HVAC volumes, I think that's really cool. It is definitely really interesting. It's unfortunate that something this tragic has to happen for it to be put in place, but yes, interesting. Also, emergency exits must be kept open or at least operable. And, you know, this one's especially interesting for me because we learned this lesson already after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Apparently not well enough, but 
the same thing happened there where the exiting was locked and not usable in a lot of instances and it prevented a lot of people from escaping safely. Revolving doors are no longer allowed to be the sole method of egress and public assembly spaces must have a minimum of two points of exit with approved panic hardware. So panic hardware is that push bar that goes across the door that you push on and it opens. The one thing about that is you don't always ha- when you have panic hardware on the inside, you don't need a door handle on the outside. So you could still have a secure building where people can't enter without going through the front door, but at least they can exit safely in an emergency. And this was especially concerning at Coconut Grove, where the fire started in the basement with only one stairway, which was also the route the fire used to spread to other parts of the club. So, you know, nowadays the basement would require two points of exit as well. And so there would likely be either two stairwells, ideally one directly to outside and one to the main floor so that people had another method to exit the building. That's a very common code in North America, Canada and the U.S. specifically, that all spaces have two points of exit. Based on my knowledge from the Grenfell Tower fire that we covered in episode four, that is not common in other parts of the world. And I think the UK still only has single path of exit as a requirement, which is a huge point of contention for me. And I really, really do not like that. I hope that I'm wrong on that. But that's my understanding from researching that failure. As well, permanent emergency lighting is required to allow occupants to exit safely. Nothing like panicking in a bunch of smoke and you can't find your way out. Emergency lighting, exit lighting is a huge part of that process. And also investigators recognize that automatic wet sprinklers would have greatly improved the outcome of the fire. Uh, sprinklers gained recognition as an alternative to difficult regulatory situations. So had there been sprinklers, this fire could have been extinguished potentially before it ever left the basement, which would have obviously been fantastic. Just on the emergency lighting side of things, um, one of the things I think is really interesting with emergency lighting and emergency lighting exits or emergency exits, they need to be designed, especially in hotel situations, for people that don't have an understanding of the language, either English or, you know, the language of the country that you're staying in, for those signs to be readable by all people. So the design and the thought that goes into emergency lighting signs and emergency exit signs, it's one of those things that we just look at and we take for granted and we we see it and we assume that, you know, it works and the colors are correct for a reason. Um, there was a lot of thought and intentional design that went into how they look, how they light up, what colors are used for lighting, how the lights, um, on some of them, they'll, they'll kind of have a, a sequential lighting that the, the path of the lights goes toward an exit. So all of these little things that you don't think about when you're going back to your room from the elevator, in an emergency situation, these are all things that save lives and have saved a lot of lives, but unfortunately likely came as a result of people perishing in in similar incidents. Yeah, there's, you know, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, Coconut Grove. These are definitely some of the worst, but they are by no means the only tragic fires that have occurred that have brought us to where we are, codes and standard-wise. I mean, even Grenfell Tower Fire, that happened in 2017. That did not happen that long ago, and that was a really tragic fire that was also completely preventable and unfortunately the victims of that fire are still dealing with the investigation and the aftermath into what happened are still dealing with the inquiry and the aftermath of that fire and you know that's just some something like that just 
it changes you that just you don't you're never the same again that's a seriously tragic event of all of the failures that we cover fires are definitely the most interesting for me those are the ones that i'm drawn to but they're also the ones i think that terrify me the most so there you have it another completely preventable fire that took the lives of hundreds of people and changed the shape of public assembly fire protection and safety regulations in North America and also around the world. Thanks for listening to this mini failure episode. For our regular episodes, check out Failureology wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. And there's links to all of these in the show notes. Bye, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>